Chapter 10 of Crips the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 All Dead Against Him. Now do he put on a muffler, sir? cried Mary, running out with her arms full as Mr. Oglander set forth in the bitter air, without overcoat but ready to meet everything. At the door was his old Whitechapel cart with a fresh young colt between the shafts, pawing at the snow and snorting, the only one of his little stud not lamed by rugged travelling. The floor of the cart was jingling with iron tools as the young horse shook himself, and the squire's groom and two gardeners were ready to jump in when called for. They stamped a little and flapped their bodies as if they would like a cordial, but their master was too busy with his own heart to remember it. "'If we be a-goin' to dig some hours in such weather as this be,' Mr. Kale managed to whisper, "'best we put in a good brandy flask, Mary, my dear, with master's leave. Poor soul, I can't eat everything.' "'Go along,' answered Mary. "'You have had enough. Shamed I be of you to think of such things, and to look at that poor hangle. "'So please, your worship, let me drive,' said Cripps, who was going to sit in front." "'A young horse, and you at your time of life, and all this trouble over you?' "'Give me the reins, my friend,' cried his worship, and Cripps, with some dread for his neck, obeyed. The men jumped in, and the young horse started at a rather dangerous pace. Many a time had Miss Grace fed him, and he used to follow her like a lamb. "'He will take us safe enough,' said the squire. "'He seems to know what he's going for.' Not another word was spoken until they came to the gap at the verge of the quarry, where the frosty moon shone through it. "'Tie him there,' said the master shortly as the groom produced his ring-rope, "'and throw the big cloth over him. Now, all of you come, and Cripps, go first. Scared as they were, they could not in shame decline the old man's orders, and the sturdy Cripps, with a spade on his shoulders, led through the drifted thicket, Behind him plodded the squire with an unlit lantern in one hand and a stout oak staff in the other, the moonlight glistening in his long white hair and sparkling frost in his hoary beard. The snow before them showed no print larger than the pad of an old dog-fox pursuing the spluttering track of a pheasant's spurs, and it crunched beneath their boots with the crusty impact of crisp severance. All around was white and waste with depth of unknown loneliness and Master Cripps said for the rest of his life that he could not tell what he was about to do it. After many flounderings in and out of hollow places, they came to the corner of the quarry dingle, and found it entirely choked with snow. The driving of the northeast wind had gathered as into a funnel there, and had stacked the snow of many acres in a hollow of less than half a rood. The men stopped short, where the gaunt brown fern, and then the firs, and then the hazels, in rising tear, waded out of sight, and behind them even some ash saplings scarcely had a knuckle joint to lift from out their burial. Over the hole the cold moon shone, and made the depth look deeper. The men stopped short, and looked at their shovels, and looked at one another. They may not have been very bright of mind, or accustomed to hurried conclusions, and doubtless they were, as true Englishmen are, of a tough, unelastic fibre. All powers of evil were banded against them, and they saw no turn to take. Still it was not their own wish to go back without having struck a blow for it. "'You can do nothing,' 
said the squire, with perhaps the first bitter feeling he had yet displayed. All things are dead against me. I must grin, as you say, and bear it. It would take a whole corps of sappers and miners a week to clear this place out. We cannot even be sure of the spot. We cannot tell where the corner is. All is smothered up so. Ill luck always rides ill luck. This proves beyond doubt that my child lies here. The men were good men as men go, and they all felt love and pity for the lost young lady and the poor old master. Still their fingers were so blue and their frozen feet so hard to feel, and the deep white gulf before them surged so palpably invincible that they could not repine at a dispensation which sent them home to their suppers. Nor to be done till change of weather, said Cripps as they sat in the cart again. I reckon they villains knew what was coming better nor I, who have kept the road man and boy for thirty year. The Lord knoweth best, as he always do. But to my mind he managed to keep on snowing and freezing for a month at least. Moon have changed last night, I believe, and a bitter moon we shall have of it. And so they did, the bitterest moon save one in the present century. And old men said that there had not been such a winter and such a sight of snow since the one which the Lord had sent on purpose to discomfit Bonnie. Mr. Oglander, in his lonely home, strove bravely to make the best of it. He had none of the grand religious consolation which some people have, especially for others, and he grounded his happiness perhaps too much upon his own hearthstone. His mind was not an extraordinary one, and his soul was too old-fashioned to demand periods of purging. Moreover, his sister Joan came up, a truly pious and devoted woman, the widow of an Oxford wine merchant. Mrs. Fermitage loved her niece so deeply that she had no patience with any selfish pinings after her. She has gone to the better land, she said, the shores of bliss unspeakable, unless Russell Overshoot knows about her a great deal more than he will tell. I have far less confidence in that young man since he took to wear India rubber but to wish her back is a very sinful and unchristian act, I fear. Now, Joan, you know that you wish her back every time you sit down or get up or go to tea without her. Yes, I know, I know, I do. And most of all when I pour it out. She used to do it for me. But, Worth, you can wrestle more than I can. The Lord expects so much more of a man. Being exhorted thus, the squire did his best to wrestle, not that any words of hers could carry now their former weight, for if he had no daughter left, what good was money left to her? The squire did not want his sister's money for himself at all. Indeed, he would rather be without it, dirty money, won by trade, but still it had been his duty always to try and get it for his daughter, and this is worth a word or two. At the Oxford Bank and among the lawyers and the leading tradesmen it had been a well-known thing that old Fermitage had not died with less than 150,000 pounds behind him. Even in Oxford there had never been a man so illustrious for port wine. Fortier Ocoba Portum was the motto over the door to his vaults, and he fortified port impregnably. Therefore he supplied all the common-room cellars which cannot have too much garopica, and among the undergraduates his name was surety for another glass, 
and there really was a port wine basis, so that nobody died of him. All these things are beside the mark. Mr. Fermitage, however, went on, and hid his mark continually, and his mark was that bull's eye of this golden age, a yellow imprint of a dragon. So many of these came pouring in that he kept them in bottles without any kicks, sealed and left to mature, and acquire the genuine bottle flavor. When he had bottled half a pipe of these, and was thinking of beginning now to store them in the wood, a man coming down with a tap found him dead, and was too much scared to steal anything. This man reproached himself even afterwards for his irresolute conscience, and the two executors gave him nothing but blame for his behavior. People in Holywell said that these two took a dozen bottles of guineas between them to toast their testator's memory, but Holywell has never been famous for the holy living lying at the bottom of the well, enough that he was dead, and every man, seeing his funeral, praised him. End of chapter 10